Conservation Chronicles. I'm Mariana here with my co-host Jonah. What's what's new, Jonah? <laughs> um, nothing much. Kind of kind of cold right now because <laughs> it's oh. cold here in Texas because yeah. this big Arctic northerly wind just came through, and uh, my heater doesn't work, so I'm all bundled up inside. Yeah, yeah, that sucks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, I'm not laughing at Jonah. I'm laughing because we had to, uh, we had to restart the recording because of some technical difficulties. Um, so if I sound different, it's because I'm using my field recorder, but (laughs) we already (laughs) talked about how cold Jonah is. (laughs) (laughs) This is a briefer conversation um, about it. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Leaving out calling my landlord names. Right. right. (laughs) Um. I remember when I was at the Ruddy Duck, my little cabin in Maine. Oh um, my gosh! If if the temperature got below ten degrees, my, the heat would just not do anything. It'd be like fifty degrees in the in the shack when I woke up. Yeah. So I had to have a bunch of space heaters. Probably pretty dangerous winter because yeah. one of my space heaters was like the coil one. So, <laughs> yeah. It, I remember I would wear that. Um, like thermal onesie when I would come over That's when we watch the movies. It was always pretty that. cold think, in there. Oh my god, I think I have a picture of that somewhere. I should totally. Uh, yeah, I remember it. Secret. Yeah, <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, oh, I should wear that. I have it here. What the heck? Oh yeah, I'm putting you that wear on it. when we're done recording. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, what's so, new with you? Uh, nothing much. Uh, I've been super busy. Um, so today's episode is gonna be mostly you talking but (laughs) um i am excited to learn more about the the animal we're talking about today um but yeah i've just been super busy thanksgiving is coming up soon and my parents planned an impromptu visit to come see me um so and um the our listeners may remember i recently moved into a new house and then i took a trip to germany so i haven't really had time to settle in um so i'm trying to make it kind of livable and a little less embarrassing for when they come (laughs) oh come on they've seen your room when you were young (laughs) (laughs) yeah when i was young (laughs) i'm now in my 30s (laughs) i should at least try to make it look like an adult lives here one of my parents comes i'm gonna be like you can sleep on the mattress that's on the floor that i sleep on (laughs) i'll sleep on the couch my parents actually ordered a bed for themselves that's that's how (laughs) yesterday <laughs> oh my gosh that's hysterical but yeah so that's all that's new here i um actually i applied for a membership at a conservation alliance like a local conservation alliance here in town um it's called the pajarito conservation alliance they do really good work they do like advocacy work they do field work they do all sorts of stuff um for ecosystems, but also mm-hmm. for um, the public to enjoy our natural spaces. Um, so that's really awesome. So I applied for a membership and they have to vote on it, but um, I'm going to like meet them in person on Tuesday and that's really exciting. So, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I really just want to spread my, <clears throat> I, I want to broaden like my reach because I've been uh, volunteering at the nature center. And I think like, I mean, I've really enjoyed getting to know the community and I want to, you know, broaden my reach because I'm really mostly interacting with kids and I want to um, interact with some adults as well. But so we'll see if, if anything interesting comes from that. I'll definitely 
update our listeners. That's cool. Yeah, I've been looking for just a some sort of like part-time position or I don't know, some something around here so that I can stay involved doing something conservation related. I mean, obviously I'm planning my project, but that's just like I'm just planning it. I'm not doing anything yet and um it'd be nice to get involved with something here in Texas and so I've I applied to one um NGO up in Austin uh that does like basically they give grants to conservation projects and um it would be a part-time position like sort of helping to manage the conservation projects um so just something like that and then yeah you're right like broadening my horizons cuz then it's something different it's like a different type of NGO and you know i like to i like to learn like we've talked about before so then i could you know learn new skills and try something different cuz there's obviously not like a field position research position here that i can do um yeah, you know yeah. part time yep. so i'm just hope, hoping that in the next couple months especially for next semester because my schedule's better that i can find something like that to do a couple days a week yeah um, yeah Oh, do you want to give everybody your big update or? Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. The biggest news of all is that <laughs> I received the first piece of funding for my Saddlebill Stork project. Yay! Um, from the African Bird Club. So I'm very grateful for them um, and recognizing that this work is important because um, it definitely wasn't because my proposal was super well written. <laughs> is <laughs> because I I believe and others believe that this is valuable work. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe now that, like, I am certain that something will happen in my project in the future, we can talk more about the details of my project and mm-hmm. relate it to the bigger picture because I have a lot to say about it. Yeah. Wetland connectivity yeah. and bird conservation and yada yada. So that's exciting. Yeah. It- It'll be awesome to um, start recording from the field next summer when you go out there. Oh my gosh, um, I know. Yeah, I was thinking that. Really cool. I was thinking that. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um, I'm just going to skip this news article. Okay. Um, well, I'll just mention that um, pretty cool that. Okay, I'm not going to skip it. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> because <laughs> it's kind of cool um yeah there was um i'm trying to find out who was the organization that did this <laughs> um <laughs> it just the article from fauna and flora flora international which is an organization that does a lot of cool conservation work um basically these marine conservationists that it looks like they're partners with a bunch of different organizations like BirdLife International and Wildlife Conservation Society. Um, they deployed GPS tags on thresher sharks for the first time in the Indonesian population of thresher sharks, which is um, pretty cool because, well, not only is it a first for studying that population, but it's all going to be going towards conservation of these sharks because thresher sharks are um, threatened because they're very they're in high demand when it comes to, um, you know, like shark fin stuff, uh, soup mm-hmm. and, and stuff for that kind of fishing. But also they, 
in Indonesia, in the Indonesian population, they make up about 50% of the bycatch from tuna fishing vessels. So they're, you know, non-target deaths in tuna fishing operations. Um, and 50% yeah. is a lot. So Yeah, that is a lot. By understanding, you know, where these sharks move and more about their behavior, they can um, help to inform better tuna fishing practices and they and they have um they've changed the way that some of the nets are designed so that if a shark a thresher shark swims into them or any shark for that matter um they can get out without becoming entangled and dying because in addition to the shark fin um fishing issue bycatch of sharks is a serious threat to all sharks not just thresher sharks so it's pretty cool that they um deployed a tag on that species for the first time i always um i'm just like a I'm sort of obsessed and infatuated with animal spatial use and so mm-hmm. i love when like new information is being collected for the first time like this it's it's really exciting just opening up a whole new world of how we understand these animals so yeah that's awesome that's my piece of news um i do okay. not have a piece of <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but that one's really cool. Um, anyways, um, so I know that I kind of, or we kind of said in the last episode that we were going to do like a, a topic that was a little more upbeat, not as much of a downer. And yeah. I, so I was like, oh, let's do an endangered species episode because we'll get to talk about their biology and life history and stuff. And then so we chose um, the Kahansi spray toad as the species we're going to cover. And then as I started putting the episode together, I was like, okay, this is a serious downer because (laughs) um, before we could even learn anything about this species life history, it went extinct in the wild. So um, apologize. I think maybe our (laughs) next episode, we could do a little better of not doing (laughs) such a downer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was just, I just have really been wanting to cover this, um, this species and their story basically since the uh, inception of this podcast because Mm -hmm. it's a very powerful story and most people have probably never even heard of the thing um yeah the species rather the thing so yeah i'm excited because i don't know much about uh this animal um i knew it was extinct in the wild but i don't i don't know anything about their story so this is going to be new to me too so i'm excited yeah and basically that's what that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's it's a story, and that's sort of the way that I wrote our, our notes and stuff because um, all of this has happened in the past 25 years, and basically this is the story of the discovery of the Kahansi spray toad and the mad dash to sort of save them from extinction. And um, it's... It's a overall, it's a pretty tragic story. Um, and it, this is one of the most endangered species in the world. Um, certainly one of the most endangered, if not the most endangered amphibian. And like I said, it, it's most people don't know about this species. And not that you necessarily have to know, you know, about the details of this species, but I think it's a, it's an important, um, example this whole story is an important example of the serious impact that that humans have on our natural environment um Mm -hmm. and interestingly to relate it to our past episode the kahansi spray toad actually 
has the smallest known uh, geographic distribution of any vertebrate, so its its range is even more specific than the Volpertinger. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, anyways. Um, so, let's travel to south-central Tanzania, to the Nzungwa, if I'm saying that correctly, the Nzungwa Mountains uh, in south-central Tanzania, which are part of a chain of mountains known as the Eastern Arc Mountains, which basically stretch across Tanzania, sort of looks sort of like a sash across the, the center of the country. Um, and the Eastern Arc Mountains are incredibly biodiverse and are famously known for extensive um, undisturbed rainforests, um, specifically high elevation um, forests. And the Unzungwas are just one of several ranges um, in the Eastern Arcs. And then the Eastern Arcs are basically like a chain of sky islands. And for those of you that don't know, sky islands are sort of um, habitats that occur at higher elevations in mountains. And they're very specific habitats that only exist at higher elevations. And so they, they occur on basically the the tops of mountains and they're separated by different types of habitats in between those um those higher elevation areas so they're basically like sky islands that's where they're called that um, yeah and they have a lot of um a lot of like endemism because um species that evolved they're um they're very habitat specific and because um because it's a sky a sky island like Jonah just said um, they can't leave that habitat to travel to, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're cut off, basically. Yeah, yeah, they're they're basically trapped just like an animal on an island in the ocean yeah. would be. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they have high endemism, which, of both plants and animals, which endemism means that they're only found, they're not found anywhere else. Um, that's what it means when something's endemic. And in the Eastern Arc Mountains alone, over 70 vertebrates are endemic. Um, cool. and that's not even like including the, the, uh, invertebrate life there is extremely diverse and there's a ton of endemics. I don't know the numbers, but also plants too. So this, this whole area of Tanzania is known famously for its endemism. Um, and in the Nzungwas specifically over 25% of the vertebrates are endemic. So these are, this is a pretty special place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because of the particular habitat and the environment um the climate there the way that the the weather or the climate works with the mountain range the position geographically all of that um is what makes that area special and has created this habitat basically um so the kahansi river is a large river that flows through the Nzunguas um from the high elevation areas and then it you know goes down and it used to um and i'm going to start speaking the past tense because this is no longer the case and we'll find out shortly why but the in the kansi river used to drop 100 meters off this escarpment um in the Nzunguas into a gorge and then down another um 750 vertical meters over four miles as it cascades through the mountain so 
it's a very steep flowing river and it's um a, a special characteristic was this big waterfall that dropped 100 meters into this this gorge that was basically consistently filled with the mist from this large waterfall and so mm-hmm. that mist really created this um sort of like micro environment there that where the plants and the animals were relying on this mist that was constantly um falling on on that in that gorge a very specific small area um and because it's so rugged these mountains are are very um difficult to access people hadn't really been into the gorge um i couldn't find anything that said you know someone had gone into the gorge and done some expedition or something before so you know no scientists had ever gone into the gorge just because it was difficult to access um but because there was year-round uh flow from the Kahansi River and a reliable river flow. So in a per- certain parts of the year, other streams and stuff in the mountains dried up, but the Kahansi River was always flowing and that waterfall was always flowing. So engineers in 1983 hatched the idea of building a hydroelectric dam at the gorge because of that consistent and year-round river flow. Um, and but before construction was started, um, an environmental survey was conducted in a, a 20 hectare area where the behind the waterfall, so upstream from the waterfall, which would, if a hydroelectric dam was put in, that would end up, a 20 hectare area would be um, inundated with water and would become a reservoir. So they did an environmental survey of that area where the reservoir would be, um, and they the conclusion they their conclusions were basically oh there's nothing special about this habitat it's just like the surrounding um mountains yeah. so they sort of gave the green light for the dam um that seems without, like um a lack of uh, thoroughness <laughs> yeah so they yeah. didn't they only did they only looked at upstream um and yeah, i don't know if that's yeah. just because you know that's easiest or because they're like oh it's too much it's difficult to get down into the gorge. Right. Um, and it seems like to me from what I've read that basically it was like, this was just a formality to do this survey. They were going to build a dam no matter what. Yeah. Um, that happens is, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's like, it's a system that's supposed to work like the environmental survey system, the environmental, all that um, before doing construction, which we also have here in the States. Um, it's a system that's supposed to work, but when they just treat it like a formality um, or even when it becomes like a, a local political issue. Um, sometimes they're like injustices. I mean, that's every system, but yeah. Yeah. And in this case it was um, at great expense because um, then it obviously took a long time to plan this dam and to get money and stuff. So construction didn't begin until 1994 um, when I was born. Um, and the dam was going to cost $270 million, um, which is an incomprehensible amount for a giant piece of concrete. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was initially funded by the world bank. Um, but subsequently other banks from like Norway, Sweden, Germany, they all joined in to fund it. Um, but 
fortunately, they insisted that there be some um, surveys done in the gorge downstream from the proposed dam. So who knows if it was just the World Bank in control of funding the whole thing instead of these other banks in Europe. This yeah. The Kahansi spray toad might have never, we would have never known it existed because no one would mm-hmm. have ever gone down in that gorge. Yeah, um, cool. So it's kind of crazy how something like that can change the fate of a species, basically. Um, so, <clears throat> like I said, construction began in 1994, and these other banks came on to fund it a little bit after construction began. So the the survey of the gorge wasn't um, commissioned until after, you know, there was already dam infrastructure in place. So -hmm. this was happening no matter what they found in the gorge. Um, So in 1996, biologists from the University of Dar es Salaam, which Dar es Salaam is in Tanzania, they did the first survey of the gorge and which must have, I can just imagine was like amazing going into this, place that no one's ever accessed before to our knowledge yeah and to have no clue what you're going to find and to find stuff that people have never seen before a new frontier <laughs> reminds me of um like sir arthur conan doyle's the lost world book have you ever read that yeah i have read that um, that was that's what it reminds me of um, <laughs> which there's like that happens every day probably but um so they went into the gorge and in addition to finding a lot of undescribed and new to science plants and invertebrates. Um, they found what they estimated to be about 50,000 of this undescribed toad. Um, little toad, just about uh, 2.9 centimeters in length, with the, which is just over an inch. Um, they're yellowish, pinkish, tinged with slender limbs. Um, and they had a distinct call, which is also how they were, were able to detect that it was um, not something that was known. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, later, um, since then, we've learned that they have, in addition to this distinct um, call that we can hear, they also have high-pitched sound. They also make high-pitched sounds that humans can't discern, which is really cool because they think it's probably to overcome the volume of the waterfall. Um uh-huh, before the dam okay. was built. So that's pretty that's, cool. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um but there was also there was a couple another couple features that made the biologists realize that this was not a species of toad that was known to science. Um so it had flaps over the nostrils which was also thought to keep out the sp- excessive spray from the waterfall. So that's interesting. Uh-huh. Um and they also had they gave birth to live young which they think is probably because um, if they laid eggs, the eggs would probably get washed away from all the, the water and the mist and stuff. Um, but others, there's a couple other species of toads that they, that it could have been that it was similar to and um, subsequently was put in the same genus. Um, but these were the characteristics that they were like, um, actually, this is not like the other toads. Um so, um, it was a new species to science, and they ended up calling it, the common name is the Kahansi Spray Toad because of the Kahansi River, Kahansi Gorge, and then um, the scientific name is Nectophrinoides 
aspergenous <laughs> nectophorinoides aspergenous something like that um and like i said it became the smallest known range it became the species of vertebrate with the smallest known range um which was two hectares wow so small that's where this entire species existed within two hectares yeah um which is crazy and like i already said it's because of the, the particular micro environment in the gorge there um, and i should say that um this area of the gorge was sort of between i, I didn't say it must be because the gorge is like um going down so steeply mm-hmm. but it said that the range of the kahansi spray toad is it exists at elevations between 694 600 and 940 meters which is okay. 2000 to 3100 feet that's so steep. it must yeah. must be. I feel like in two hectares it can't go down that far. Um, right. So I don't know what that is based on, but it's it's kind of a higher elevation. Um, mm-hmm. um, like I said, in addition to the toads, the biologists found um, four new endemic plants, as well as some other rare trees, primates, and birds that are unique to the Nzunguas. Um, so, again, this is a very special place, this gorge. Um, yet, despite all these discoveries, because dam construction was already underway, um, most the biologists and other conservationists that were involved in this, they knew that basically this environment was going to become extinct because the dam was going to cut off the waterfall and yeah. not only just cut off the, the river flow, but cut off that mist from the, mm-hmm. the water falling over that, that drop. Um, so biologists started looking for other suitable habitat that wasn't, you know, developed that they could maybe transplant the toads and, and these plants to so that they would persist. Um, <clears throat> but they couldn't find anywhere because it, the gorgeous environment is just so unique. Yeah. Um, so sort of as a, a compromise because they knew they couldn't fight the construction of this dam, the biologists recommended that um, half of the river's flow continue down the gorge once the, the dam was built instead of cutting off, you know, all of it, like was proposed. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that's too much of a sensible compromise and yeah. it was not, that advice was not heeded. Um, and of course, all of this is going behind on behind closed doors. Um, but then in 1999, in Europe, some newspapers, um, you know, learned about the situation. I think they they read about the published description of this toad and how it's only found in that area, found in that area, and they got wind of um, how the dam construction just continued as it was going, and an, sort of an outcry ensued from that. Um, and a lot of conservation groups accused the banks that were funding this and Tanzania of violating the International Convention on Biological Diversity which basically says that you can't build stuff if it's going to um, like cause an extinction or severely threaten a, a species or a population or whatever. In this case, an yeah. entire microhabitat. Right. Um, so because of this outcry, um, the government and the banks added another $6 million to the, the project to cover the conservation work and 
changed their plans to make sure that the gorge would receive 10% of the river's previous flow. Um, so, you know, doing the bare minimum <laughs> to yeah. make sure that they're, you know, meeting the, what these conservationists want, right. um, which is typical. Um, so part of the efforts that were put in place was this gravity fed pipe system that was built to take water from the, the top of the dam um, and bring it down into the gorge where these spray nozzles were in- installed and the spray nozzles like basically misted these little meadows where the toads were, where the toads lived uh-huh. um, because there was definitely concern about all these other unique species that were there, but they weren't endemic to the gorge. Like the, this Kahansi spray toad was basically the flagship animal for this gorge because it was found nowhere else. Um, And so that's where, where all the conservation work primarily focused. Um, There was also a lot of invertebrate um, stuff that, that went on, but it wasn't as, as popularized as this spray toad. Um, And so anyways, they installed this like mister system. um, But, the artificial misters would only mist about a quarter of the toad's previous habitat. So half a hectare. Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, So they just cut this entire species geographic distribution by 75%. Crazy. Um, And yeah. So, but of course um, the sprinklers weren't ready. weren't completely constructed by the um by 2000 when the water flow of the river was completely cut off because the dam was completed mm-hmm. um so construction began in 1994 all of this was happening in between then two th- by the year 2000 the dam was finished and the water was completely cut off um and despite the sprinkler the misters not being ready in the gorge the engineers just they finished the dam and no water was brought to the gorge. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until nine months later at the end of 2000 when the sprinklers were ready. But by then, this micro ecosystem in the gorge had dried up and was completely changed. So dry habitat plants that were you know, more in the, the upland areas instead of in the gorge had invaded and become established. Mosses declined by 95%. Wow. Um, insect diversity plummeted. And there were only 2,000 of the toads left from the original 50,000 that they estimated in um, 1994. That's an or insane I'm sorry. Yeah. Wow. Um. So just in that nine-month period, basically this ecosystem just went downhill and would have kept going downhill if um, this sprinkler system didn't go online. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit what happened next? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, okay. So in December 2000, that's where we are, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in December 2000, the Wildlife Conservation Society was permitted to collect 500 of the remaining toads for captive breeding in a handful of U.S. zoos. Um, 
I have my issues with that, but that's basically the last resort. That's all they could do. Um, And of course, the toads did not fare well in captivity. They developed lungworms, infections, bone problems, internal parasites, and nutritional deficiencies. Um, And they wouldn't breed predictably, um, which happens a lot, a lot, actually. Uh, By early 2004, there were only 70 survivors, 70 in two zoos, um, the Bronx and Toledo zoos. Uh, By 2005, the captive population improved and grew to 300 toads. Um, So how'd they do that? Um, Well, I think they got a handle on the, you know, the health issues they were having with the frogs or the toads. Um, And just, you know, this was the first time anyone had kept this species in captivity. So there was sort of a learning curve, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. on best husbandry practices for the species. And so that's why they plummeted in the first few years. But then as they got a handle on it, they were able to, you know, figure out what conditions they needed to breed successfully and, you know, maintain the health of the individuals. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And... The, yeah, and well, we'll we'll see that it, it, you know, taking in a species like this where basically you're its last hope, and having a huge number of them, like they took 500 in captivity, there's a lot of risk by having them, you know, in similar environments, and so they had to like, you know, they they were at separate zoos, but at the zoos they had to even keep separate colonies is what they sort of called them because Mm -hmm. especially when you have these infections and I, you know, there, I couldn't find details about the, this period of time, what was happening in the zoos, but I imagine they were, these toads were all kept together and they got these infections and it spread and that just, you know, wiped them out a lot. And so then they realized, okay, we need to like keep them separate. So if one colony gets an infection, it's not going to wipe out our whole captive population. Um, so, okay. So that's what happened with, you know, the captive, uh, part of this story. Um, but let's go back to, to early 2000, which is, or 2001, which is when the, the sprinklers, you know, officially and fully came on in the Kansi Gorge and slowly that environment in the gorge started to return to what it was like. So the wet environment plants returned um species of endemic insects started to recover um ones that were important prey for the toads um and and then the population of toads started to increase pretty significantly um so by june 2003 20,000 toads were estimated in the gorge so they can recover pretty fast which is mm-hmm. which is a a good characteristic for an endangered species like this. Yeah. Um, a lot of endangered species, they breed really slow and it's just, that's just naturally how they are and you can't do anything to change it, but these ones breed quickly. Um, and so the whole time while there's captive breeding going on, the wild population is going up. So, so that's awesome. Um, and that's before wild toads were even reintroduced. Um, so June, 2003, there were 20,000 toads. By August 2003, there were 40 in the wild. Oh, my gosh. So huge, exciting population increase, like incredible crash in a period of a couple months from 20,000 to 
to 40 individuals in the gorge in the wild. I can't imagine um, being that biologist who goes down expecting a healthy population and only finds 40 or that team. It must've been a team. Like, uh, what a roller coaster. Uh, that would, that would be crushing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like being involved in this whole story, it's just like, yeah. Yeah. It's a roller coaster. Um, so that was August, 2003. There were 40 individuals in the wild in January, 2004. There were an estimated five toads. That's all they saw. Again, obviously, they didn't see every single one, but their sampling is reflective of the overall population. Um, and then, you know, following that in January 2004, there were some a handful of calls heard, and then potentially one seen, but basically, there weren't there weren't any left. Um, and our good old friend chytrid fungus is what is sus- suspected to be the cause of the decline. Yeah. Um, most likely because it was imported by, um, you know, people coming into the gorge. This was an environment that had never had had never been visited by people, and here we are bringing in sprinklers and all this stuff to build the sprinklers. Um, you know, stuff the dam up just upstream above the gorge. Who knows? Chemical. Uh, who yeah. knows? It getting washed mm-hmm. downstream. Um, biologists coming in with boots from you know who knows where they they've been. Um, yeah. And you know this is still at the if you our listeners recall our chytrid episode. This is sort of at the early stages of understanding chytrid. Um, chytrid had only just been described you know a few years before, so they weren't taking these kind of precautions. Nowadays, if something like this happened, this special environment. Is, highly endangered toad you know people would go in with like hazmat suits oh absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah we're much more aware now um Um, also another another thought is that you know chytrid is is definitely one of was one of the causes because it was found um you know post decline it was found to be in the environment um but also um, the crash seemed to coincide with um, a brief opening of the dam where all this, because all the sediment built up from, you know, the initial, the river getting, backing up all the sediment because all of a sudden there's a, a wall there. So they opened the dam briefly to flush out all the sediment. Um, and, you know, some tests show that that water and that sediment contain pesticides from um, maize farms upstream. So that's also another suspect that probably caused a bunch of these toads to die. Um, so they're just, they just basically got hammered very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like I said, after January, 2004, there basically weren't any seen, but it wasn't until 2009 that the IUCN, um, updated the status of the species from critically endangered to extinct in the wild. So it was discovered when it was discovered, it was listed as critically endangered right off the bat, which is never a good sign. And then 15 years later, it's extinct in the wild. Mm -hmm. Um, So that means for, if you don't, people don't know what that really means that just exactly what it sounds like. There's no more that exists in the wild. They're only found in captivity. Mm -hmm. So the way that the IUCN gives um, status categories to species. Um, it, 
you know, starts from vulnerable is the, they're threatened, but they're of concern and threatened, but um, they're not endangered yet. And there's certain criteria for this, scientific criteria. They're supposed to be, not always, there always yeah. isn't, uh-huh. like the saddleable stork. But um, then, so there's vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and then extinct. So basically they are, the next step for the species is for it to become ex- completely extinct. Um, so, um, this whole time, um, they've been, the, the zoos, the Bronx and Toledo zoo have been breeding them. And this is actually how I first learned about the Kahansi spray toad. I went to the Bronx zoo and I saw them and they are such cool little toads. I have a really good picture of them and I just love the picture that I took of them and, um, I mean, there's nothing, like, particularly special about them. Like, they're not, like, crazy color. Um, They're very small. I don't know. They're just... They're really neat looking, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll obviously share pictures of them on Facebook and Instagram. But um, that was how I first learned about them. And, gosh, what year was that? That was... um, That might have been 2009, Oh, wow. It was 2009. Yeah. Um, because, yep, that was it was 2009. So that was the year they were um, listed as extinct in the wild. So, I mean, I didn't realize how serious that was at the time. Um, I don't even know if at the time of me going to the zoo, they had officially been listed as extinct Declared. in the wild. But yeah. um, it's pretty cool to have, to have seen them. And that's how I learned about this this story or at least that at that point up to that point what the story was mm-hmm. um so following that um in 2010 a hundred toads from captive u.s populations were brought to tanzania um to establish a third captive population at the university of dar es salaam so the, the biologists and at the university of dar es salaam have been involved in this from the beginning from when they first discovered this um as any person probably would want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted, you know, it's it's dangerous, like I said, to have only a couple populations of an animal that this is all we have in the entire world. And so spreading them out is, is an important um, tactic to prevent extinction, basically, because if something happened in those U.S. zoos, then they're all gone. Yeah. Um, so then thanks to the the you know, the success that grew from the captive populations at the Bronx and Toledo zoos, um, 2000 spray toads were released back into the wild in the Kahansi Gorge in 2012, which was the first time an extinct in the wild amphibian was ever returned to the wild. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of firsts with this species, which is what makes it a really interesting story. Um, but of course they didn't just like throw them out there. Um, these spray, these sprinklers, misting systems were in place there. Um, I'm not sure if they kept them running the whole time. Right. Like, oh yeah. Hmm. I would imagine they would because it was just gravity fed water going down. Right. And if there were any that were still alive, you know, you would hope that keeping that mist going would maybe help the population. Um, but of course they were, they were always going back and they never found any, um, Mm -hmm. But so they did some experiments. Um, 
they first they put well, actually, before they even released them, they tested to see if the captive toads had chytrid because they didn't want to release them. Um, because there was, I believe, I read that there was chytrid in some of the captive populations. That's why they were, some of them were dying. So they had to manage that. Yeah. Um, then, in addition, so then they tested them. They didn't have chytrid, so they're safe to release. Um, then they exposed them to, you know, the water and the plants and other amphibians that still lived in the gorge um, just to see how these captive individuals would respond because these have lived their entire life in captivity. And at that point, well, yeah, they only live something like um, three to four years. That's how long these toads live. So every toad in existence only ever existed in captivity. So none had been in the wild. So you don't know how... Um, they would respond to, to being in the wild with certain environmental um, uh, things or whatever. Um, so they responded yeah. fine to the yeah <laughs> conditions is what I mean. You know the water, the plants, the other species. Yes. Yeah. Um, so they they did fine with those experiments. Um, so then they did a soft release, which basically means they didn't just throw them out there. They took the captive-born toads, put them in a, scre- a screened enclosure in the gorge so they could monitor them. They are in a limited environment um, just to see how they, they did in the wild. As, when they did fine, then they, you know, they did the full-scale reintroduction um, and let them go freely in the wild. So since, since then, in 2012, when the first reintroduction happened... Um, about 5,400 toads have been released into the gorge. And I couldn't find any, like, up-to-date numbers, but the last number I saw was that in December 2015, of those 5,400 that have been released, there were only 54 individuals in the wild. So they were dying a lot um, after being released. Um and, you know, generally following releases, the population experienced a sharp decline, you know, a couple days after the releases. It was like the first couple of days, it's like, okay, they're all here. And then all of a sudden they just be gone after a couple of days. And a lot of people think that this is probably because the toad population has been in captivity for a decade without any present, without any predators. Um, you know, they've been provided for completely their their food is different um so just all of these things just don't set the toads up for success but how do you get around how do you get around that um, yeah um so and as of october 2015 the u.s captive population was at six thousand. so there's all these toads in captivity and there's only 54 in the wild um in February 2016, the University of Dar es Salaam population was a little over 3,000. Um, you know, the breeding efforts have experienced a lot of ups and downs, like we've said. Um, and the situation in the wild where they're all dying because they're not used to being in the wild just really shows how sensitive um, this situation is and how the species is basically... Um, on a ledge 
of extinction, um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it, they're, they're so close. Um, and the IUCN hasn't updated their status from extinct in the wild, even though we know there are individuals in the wild. Um, but there's certain criteria and they don't do it like, you know, whenever it's, you know, they redo, they review species on every few years. And so, um, we're coming up on 10 years since they were listed as extinct in the wild. And, um, you know, that, that status doesn't really, that's just a category that we've made that, you know, people made cause we feel like we have to put everything in these, in a little box to pretend like we know everything, but, um, you know, everyone knows that there are individuals in the wild, but there's so few that, you know, any day there could be none. Um, yeah. And, you know, the spray toad over this whole period has cost a staggering $12 million. So who would have thought that such a little animal would spend so much money? Um, but, and man, this is like, this is a really difficult example that I don't, I don't know what to think because, you know, is that, is that worth it? Um, Mm -hmm. not that I'm asking this, but you know, this is a question for everyone. Is it, has it been worth it to spend that much money with basically no results? Um, you know, Mm -hmm. having the, okay, the, the, the spray toad was, like I said, it was a flagship, um, for the other, species that exist in the gorge so they helped protect those and just the unique ecosystem by you know making sure that okay we got they threw us a bone we got 10 percent of the water flow coming out of the dam we got the misters um but it's the toad that has suffered the most because it was so specific in the area that it lived yeah what you know okay so basically you can say 12 million dollars went into protecting this this ecosystem um, I think that $12 million also includes just like the spe- toad specific captive breeding, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could that money have been spent in helping another species somewhere else? Um, mm-hmm. And, oh, but before I say that, or before I answer that, well, not that I have the answer to that, but I just also want to say that um, currently the the Kahansi Dam produces about a third of Tanzania's power. Um, but at what expense? Um, you know, it's cost $12 million. Well, over that, the dam, plus all the, you know, $300 million or whatever for the dam, but plus all the 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 negative impact on the gorge and the species. Um and granted, if that dam was never proposed and never went in, we would have never known about the Kahansi spray toad. But, you know, that probably would have been better. It could have just lived there, you know. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a shame, really. Like, I think, what, yeah, it's a shame because if the um, if the sponsors of the dam, the financial sponsors of the dam had just listened, um, you know, it's it's just... Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it's just a shame. Yeah, I think uh, it'd be interesting. I mean, obviously, we it, there's no way to know, 
but that original compromise that the biologists had, okay, how about 50% of the water going out? Because then yeah. it's a win-win. Um, I think there still would have been a negative effect in the gorge, but it wouldn't have been as bad. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't until after the dam was built that they decided to do the 10% or after the gorge dried up that they decided to do the 10%. So if they took that compromise in the beginning, the gorge would have never dried up originally and the frog population would have, you know, remained somewhat stable, you would think. Um, But now, you know, you can't, you can't go back really because now people have come to rely on the electricity of the dam um, and the water from the reservoir. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what do you do in that situation? Because now people, it's it's harder to change once something like this is set in motion than to to come up with a compromise in the beginning. And the compromise would have been the easiest way to benefit everyone. Yeah. Um. And so going back to you know that that question that I have like was this worth it? Um. I also think you know going back to what we talked about in the last episode with Otto Leopold, um, I looked up that quote. He said, to keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can't say how important is this toad to this ecosystem? Is it providing some benefit to the ecosystem? We don't know because, like, we never even had a chance to learn. Um, so it's it's foolish I'm sure there are a lot of conservationists out there that say this was a waste of time and money. We shouldn't do this because, um, you know, they were just basically they're doomed and we should have just let that happen. But mm-hmm. that's what Aldo Leopold is talking about. It's it's unintelligent to look at an ecosystem that we do not understand. We don't understand any ecosystem fully. We have the smallest under, you know, knowledge about it. Um, and to be like, okay, well, you know, we just have to let that go and expect that things are going to be okay. We don't, we don't know. And right. you know, taking away just that mist of the waterfall, that effect that that had is, it's a pretty powerful example of the, how extreme our impacts can be on the environment. I mean, just because, uh, you know, we can't visibly see or see the benefit to something doesn't mean that it isn't important basically. And, um, you know, also another quote from Aldo Leopold, he said, the last word in ignorance is the man who says of an animal or plant, what good is it? Um, Mm -hmm. I like that one. Like just, he's just like spewing out wisdom. I know. Um, he is. He was. He was really wise, and he had like, um, really good foresight. Yeah, like I well. mean, you know, he wrote this stuff before the 1940s. This was published in the 1940s, and we knew so little back then um, about ecology. Mm-hmm. You know, we we knew stuff about biology of, you know, a certain species, especially game species, because that's what was of interest. But for him to be able to recognize this back then. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, he, he recognized this and wrote about it, but how many people have had these same thoughts and, you know, we never heard from them. Not that that has yeah. any bearing on anything, but it's just an interesting thought because it's not like, 
he invented this this conservation ethic, basically, which is, you know, what we talked about. That's what he's known for. It's not like he invented this. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's, you know, he just brought it all together and, and wrote about it and recognized it and helped people to understand that. But there's something, you know, the fact that he did that means that we can all understand that. Like we have the ability Mm -hmm. This is this is like so stupid. We have the ability within us to recognize it. You know, it's it's something yeah. that <laughs> no, that can true. be innate. Um, I think. Anyways. Yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. I think a lot of people have the sentiment in them, and and what what we need are voices. Um, like Aldo Leopold was a voice yeah. for the sentiment that many people already shared. I think. Yeah, and it, it's not like he's saying. You know, in in our field, there's these two, not necessarily opposing, but different different views of, you know, conservation versus preservation. So conservation meaning basically, you know, protecting the environment, but also using our resources wisely so that it is mm-hmm. it is a win win for, you know, we're we're conserving the natural world and we're also benefiting from it in a wise way. Whereas preservation is just, you know, leave it alone. Don't touch it. It'll, you know, the environment or nature is fine on its own without us, but we're, we're part of, yeah. of nature and people tend to separate, you know, like nature, some separate entity. We're here. Yeah. We're, we're part of it. Um, not in like a esoteric way. I'm not saying that I'm saying we're, we're in nature. Like, um, we're influencing it and we're changing it, whether that be good or in a good or bad way. Um, so it's, it's not realistic. The preservation argument isn't always realistic because, um, you know, we have to yeah. eat and we have to have these resources, but the issue is, the issue comes in is how wise is our use of the resources and the way that we influence the environment. And obviously putting a dam like this is not wise um, mm-hmm. I think the comp going back to that compromise of 50% of the river flow, that might've been something that, you know, if all, if this, if that was happening in Aldo Leopold's time, he probably could have hopped on board with, because you're taking into account the needs of these people in Tanzania. They need electricity. Um, well, fundamentally is that a need, but we won't go there. Um, but you know, <laughs> Our growing, the the growing um, society and whatever of the entire world was requiring that people in Tanzania have this electricity, but also the gorge yep. needed that spray, and so that was a reasonable compromise that um, follows like the conservation line of thought because you're yeah being wise in what you need and wise in what you know the environment needs. Um, anyways, Mm -hmm. so this is like a very, this is a very specific, but very, and very extreme example of how we can affect our environment. But I think it can apply to, to everything, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all I'll say. Thoughts? That was very good. (laughs) (laughs) That was very good. Thank you for that for that really really cool story. Um, 
and for doing all the talking <laughs> today. You know I like the sound um, of my own voice. Everyone, all my friends that are listening, they know the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that was, yeah, um, I think you're right. That was a very, that was a perfect representative story of our impact on the environment. And, um, you know, on the conservation versus preservation front, um, conservationism um, is more adaptive and you have to be adaptive to multiple needs. Like you were saying, Um, if you just wanted to preserve that gorge entirely, um, which I think there would be very, would have been very good arguments for. um, They also had to keep in mind that the water was needed, the power, um, the people needed the power. So um, yeah, it, it just, if only there had been more dialogue. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes there isn't time for that kind of thing. When, when the world is moving, like you said, the world is moving fast. And um, if you fall behind, then your society suffers. Okay, um, so I, we haven't given a sustainability tip in a couple episodes, so let's get back to that because I have pretty good one today, I think, um, that has sort of been on my mind um, and sort of relates to like water because we we're talking about water vaguely, hardly. Um, but anyways, so people have sort of maintained this um domestic doctrine, I'll call it, that certain clothes need to be washed in hot water, certain clothes need to be washed in cold water. Um, and yes, it's true that, you know, certain color clothes, the color may run in hot water, but that's just gives support for the reason or for the idea that you don't need to actually wash your clothes in hot water because um, you might end up just causing more of a mess. So, you know, one idea is that, oh, the hot water is killing the bacteria and stuff, but with, like, you know, modern day washing machines and detergents, um, which we'll get to in a second, they do a sufficient job of, of killing the bacteria um, and cleaning clothes. You don't need the hot water to do that at the same time. Um, so my recommendation is to use cold water for all of your laundry because it saves energy and it cuts down on your monthly bill because hot water costs a lot to um, to make in your hot... Isn't it weird how we call it a hot water heater? Yeah. You're not heating hot water. It's just a water heater. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, it costs a lot to heat up water for, for doing laundry. Um, and then, you know, these commercial laundry detergents, they contain a lot of chemicals, known chemicals, that pose a, a hazard to your health and the health of our, you know, local waterways when those chemicals run off into rivers and streams and stuff. Mm-hmm. So first tip, use cold water. Second tip, um, don't use commercial laundry detergents like Tide or, or Downy or whatever, um, putting certain companies on the spot because they have a lot of known chemicals in their stuff. Um, so you can you can buy, you know, like, oh, natural laundry detergent. I, I think that 
is going to be more challenging than finding like natural soap or something, but it's possible. Um, or you can find some easy homemade recipe online. I'm not going to give you a specific recipe, recipe, but, um, you know, it contains ingredients like baking soda, vinegar, or essential oils for scent. And for some reason, people think making homemade things is like this daunting task. Um, first of all, let's realize, um, that's what humans have done for all of our existence. Like we made things we didn't, yeah. it's just like, we've, we've basically like gotten away from being real humans where we like do real human things to survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, I have to make something. Um, anyways, you can, um, easily make them at home. I, I do this with a lot of different things. Um, so you can easily find it recipes online for making homemade detergent. Um, also there's this idea that fabric softener is required, um, which I personally think is a commercial ploy to make you think you need something that you don't, um, which is applies to a lot of things, Mm -hmm. but also it's, you know, that fabric softener also contains chemicals and stuff. Um, and it's not like, you know, the absence of fabric softener is going to make your clothes be uncomfortably rough to wear. It's not essential. And if you feel that you, it is essential and you want something to replace, um, fabric softener with, try about a half a cup of white vinegar during the rinsing cycle. And it could accomplish something similar to fabric softener. Um, okay. So now you've washed your clothes in cold water with homemade detergent. Um, Next, I encourage you to hang your clothes out to dry um, because that's also cutting down um, energy using a dryer and also just your energy bill because running a dryer is really expensive and it actually uses more energy than a refrigerator. Um, so if you're if you're able to, you know, obviously weather dependent and stuff, hang your clothes out to dry. It takes five minutes and it could save you, you know, $20 a month on your energy bill, which, um, I could definitely use an extra $20. Yeah. Month. Um, if you have to use a dryer for, you know, whatever circumstance, um, avoid using dryer sheets because first of all, they're really wasteful. And second of all, they're not necessary. They're, um, you know, just like the commercial or the, Fabric softener, it's a commercial ploy to make you think you need something. Um, instead, you can use wool dryer balls that you can either buy or make. You could look up making them online out of yarn. Very simple. And that's just to help reduce static if you're washing certain material or drying certain material that is going to produce a lot of static. That wool absorbs it all. And then if you want your clothes to come out of the dryer smelling nice, like a dryer sheet or something, you can put in a, a damp rag with essential oils and it'll leave them smelling nice. Um, and then lastly, you can also just reduce the amount of laundry that you do overall. Um, people think that you have to do every time you wear something, you have to wash it. Um, which just is not logical. Um, unless your clothes get really dirty and they smell, you don't need to wash them. Um, also I personally, I make my own deodorant and the, deodorant that I make, like I, it eliminates all odor, even when I'm like sweating and doing something outside. So if you're using, which I recommend using, um, homemade deodorant, because again, commercial deodorants have chemicals and are actually really dangerous for women. Um, 
because they have aluminum in them and it in- increases chance of breast cancer. Yeah. Um, but also they, the chemicals in them promote body odor and promote perspiration so that you feel you have to keep putting it on and then you're buying more. So again, a commercial ploy. Um, but if you're using homemade deodorant, I mean, I can take off my a shirt at the end of the day and like put my nose up to the armpit and it doesn't smell at all. And it, it, the shirt didn't get dirty. I can just hang it back up in the in the closet and wear it a few times before I actually wash it. So you can really just cut down on water bill and electric bill by doing laundry less frequently. Um, and, you know, things like jeans are actually meant to only be washed like once a year. And that's that's not coming from me, in my opinion. That's like from Levi. That's what they recommend because it makes jeans last longer when they're washed less frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are just overall, you know, concerning laundry, things that you can do to be more sustainable. And I think, you know, they're also just logical um, alternatives to what we think we have to do because whatever some corporation has put this in our head. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah. yeah. Stick it to the man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for that. Um, yes, I I agree, and also a lot of the um, the commercial um, detergents and dryer sheets have so many chemicals in them, um, and you can develop allergies, um, and you can you know develop skin rashes. Um, so so even if you don't, even if that doesn't happen to you, these chemicals can do that to you. So you know that to me really puts me off um, using things like that. Um, so, and, um, yeah, so, and, it, and of course making your own detergent, no longer using dryer sheets, um, using a wool dryer ball, like you said, that can be reused. Um, that's all, uh, also money saving as well. So. Yeah. And it's almost, it's, I find personally, that's like very fulfilling to be using something that I made. I mean, obviously I didn't like make the baking soda and make the vinegar, but like, um, these are things that you have at the Mm -hmm. house and that you buy and you're, someone might say, Oh, well you're, you know, you're paying for those just like you're paying for laundry detergent. But like the, the cost is greater when you're using laundry detergent because you don't have to use as much of these ingredients when you're making your own laundry detergent and so a little bit of them can go a long way and you can buy a thing of baking soda and it lasts you know years or something yeah so it it just makes more financial sense um and logical sense to to do it that way i think yeah okay so um yes so thank you for that sustainability tip uh really good one today And uh, in closing, uh, we'd just like to thank everybody for listening. And if you have any questions or comments or you want to reach out to us, we welcome your commentary. Um, We'd we'd love to start a dialogue with our listeners. Uh, You can contact us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. Um, And we also have an email address, uh, Conservation Chronicles or What's the email address? <laughs> First Twitter, now this. Yeah. Conservationchronicles at gmail.com, which we oh, haven't, right. we've only said it in a couple episodes, I think. So you can email yeah. us if, if you'd rather do that. Yeah, absolutely. If, you, if you're not on social media or if you want to give us, if, or if you want to write more um, than, um, than what social media gives you, uh, write us a story or anything like that. Um, you can also email us and 
Um, we can feature your comments or questions on the podcast as well. Um, so yeah. Oh, and our website yes. um, where you can also download other episodes if you haven't listed them is conservationchronicles.podbean.com. And then you can also find um, our other episodes on whatever podcast platform you use. Um, Cause we're actually on a lot now. I don't know how it happens, how it works. I don't know but <laughs> I've been seeing us on other ones that we didn't sign up for. Yeah. So that's cool. <laughs> I guess Podbean does that all for us. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, okay. until next time.